Um, so Charles Ryrie uh, said, the Bible is the greatest of all books. To study it is the noblest of all pursuits. To understand it is the highest of all goals. A.W. Tozer said, we must not select a few favorite passages to the exclusion of others. Nothing less than a whole Bible can make a whole Christian. Charles Spurgeon said, some people like to read so many Bible chapters every day. I would not dissuade them from that practice, but I would rather lay my soul a soak in half a dozen verses all day than rinse my hand in several chapters. Oh, to be bathed in a text of Scripture and to let it be sucked up in your very soul till it saturates your heart. D.A. Carson said, since we are dealing with God's thoughts, we are obligated to take the greatest pains to understand them truly and to explain them clearly. The Apostle Paul said in 2 Timothy 2.15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. That is my primary job as your pastor, to present myself to God as one approved by studying the full counsel of God, bathing myself in the text of Scripture until it saturates my heart and taking great pains to explain it clearly. It is a job that I take very seriously. And as God's people, it is your responsibility to test my messages to make sure I am being faithful to this God-given task. In Acts 17, verse 11, the Bereans received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Whenever we study a particular passage from scripture, we should look for textual clues. What comes immediately before and what comes immediately after the verses under consideration? Plus, how does the specific selection fit within the biblical message as a whole? In other words, let Scripture interpret Scripture. We also benefit from paying attention to historical clues like the time period and purpose of a biblical book, the circumstances surrounding its authorship, the geographical, political, and cultural setting. And it is also helpful to consider literary clues such as emphasized or repeated words, precisely placed conjunctions, and so on. Mind you, this is not an exhaustive list for how we should arrive at a proper interpretation of Scripture, but those are some solid principles to follow. And once we have explored textual, historical, and literary clues to help us arrive at the original meaning via the Holy Spirit-inspired author, we can bridge it with a universal message that applies to God's people across every time period. There is some counsel for the church in this, especially when we arrive at a biblical text as challenging as Judges chapter 11 and the narrative of Jephthah. Counsel number one, become good students of God's word. 
How we understand and study the Bible matters for both our individual and corporate well-being. This morning, I am reading to us from Judges 11, verses 1 through 12, and then 40 to 28 through 40. Beginning at verse 1, Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior. His father was Gilead. His mother was a prostitute. Gilead's wife also bore him sons, and when they were grown up, they drove Jephthah away. You are not going to get any inheritance in our family, they said, because you are the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and settled in the land of Tob, where a gang of scoundrels gathered around him and followed him. Some time later, when the Ammonites were fighting against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. Come, they said, be our commander so we can fight the Ammonites. Jephthah said to them, didn't you hate me and drive me from my father's house? Why do you come to me now when you are in trouble? The elders of Gilead said to him, Nevertheless, we are turning to you now. Come with us to fight the Ammonites, and you will be head over all of us who live in Gilead. Jephthah answered, Suppose you take me back to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gives them to me. Will I really be your head? The elders of Gilead replied, The Lord is our witness. We will certainly do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and commander over them. And he repeated all his words before the Lord in Mizpah. Then Jephthah sent messengers to the Ammonite king with the question, What do you have against me that you have attacked my country? And now continuing in our reading at verse 28, The king of Ammon, however, paid no attention to the message Jephthah sent to him. Then the Spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah. He crossed Gilead and Manasseh, passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and from there he advanced against the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord, If you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's, and I will sacrifice it as a whole burnt offering. Then Jephthah went over to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into his hands. He devastated 20 towns from Aror, vicinity of Mineth, as far as Abel, Cumin, Karaman. Thus Israel subdued Ammon. When Jephthah returned to his home in Mizpah, who should come out to meet him but his daughter, dancing to the sound of timbrels? She was an only child. Except for her, he had neither son nor daughter. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and cried, Oh no, my daughter, you have brought me down. I am devastated. I have made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. My father, she replied, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me just as you promised. Now that the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the Ammonites. But grant me this one request, she said. Give me two months to roam the hills and weep with my friends, because I will never marry. You may go, he said. And he let her go for two months. She and her friends went into the hills and wept because she would never marry. After the two months, she returned to her father, and he did to her as he had vowed. And she was a virgin. From this comes the Israelite tradition that each year the young women of Israel go out for four days to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite. Hmm. Jephthah obviously had no part in the decision of his father to have him out of wedlock. He had not done anything wrong, but he was treated poorly. He was driven out. 
More broadly, Jephthah is mistreated by God's people. Gilead, you see, consisted of a people group as well as a territory. After Israel defeated Sion, the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh were assigned to the region east of the Jordan River. There is some counsel for the church in this. God's people can be some of the most hurtful and calculating people. Have you ever been wounded by those in the family of God? Perhaps you have even heard individuals say they will never return to the church because of those wounds. Last week we were at lunch with the Martinez's and John Martinez invited our waitress to church. And she commented that she had grown up with a dad who was a Baptist pastor. And immediately after, she added she would never step foot in another Baptist church. Do not wound others in the church. That's counsel number two. But notice that Jephthah never plays the victim card. And neither should we. When the church wounds us, we must still carry on in the Lord's cause without feeling sorry for ourselves, without becoming resentful toward those who may have belittled or besmirched us. Jephthah, a valiant warrior, does not, seek, does not seek revenge on his brothers, nor does he separate himself from continuing in the battles of the Lord. In Tob, which means good, Jephthah led a mis fit band who followed him in guerrilla warfare against Ammon. Counsel number three, if others go low, stay focused on the good. The classification of those who followed Jephthah's lead as worthless does not mean that they were morally bankrupt. Rather, it is a characterization of their social standing. These men were outcasts, just like Jephthah, with little financial means. This is a bit of a stretch, but picture it like Jephthah pastoring a small, poor church, but leading it in a very effective way. Before too long, a bigger church comes a-calling. I am convinced that Jephthah was successfully fighting against Israel's enemy because it explains why Gilead pursues him. They believed they needed Jephthah's skill sets amid the troubles that they now faced. Amid this, there is yet more counsel for the church. Counsel number four, a human leader is never the answer to a church's problems. It's the mentality of if we just get someone who is a strong preacher, or if we just get someone who is especially good at outreach, or if we just get someone who has a young family, someone who has administrative skills, someone who has strong denominational connections, if, if, if. And the main problem with that is the church is never built on the strength of human leadership. It is built on the foundation of Jesus Christ our Lord. Whenever we get confused on whom the kingdom of God is built, we can easily place our hope in the wrong things. Plus, we must never forget the flawed nature of those who lead in the church. I am convinced that Jephthah is drawn to the opportunity that Gilead promises out of his desire for personal advancement. Too many of us in ministry can fall victim to the seductions of pride and position. Why do you think it is one of the first questions a pastor often hears is how big is your congregation? 
Counsel number five, the church often needs saving from within its own walls. Jephthah had been more than happy to leave his little church in Tob for the larger church in Gilead. He holds aspirations of a multi-site megachurch where he appears on screens throughout the region. He wants to create a name for himself. He wants a dynasty. Only this is not something that God wants for Jephthah. It was not yet time for any type of king in Israel. Jephthah was a faith-filled churchman who had misplaced aspirations, and none of us, mind you, are perfect. I say that he was faith-filled because his name would not otherwise appear in Hebrews 11, verse 32, as part of the great Hall of Faith chapter. Furthermore, Jephthah was a biblically astute man as seen through his evangelistic outreach to the Ammonites in Judges 11, 13 to 27. I encourage you to read those verses for yourself later. Jephthah testifies to the Ammonites because he knew the scriptures well. He knew the history of God's people as passed down through Moses and the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible. Numbers 21, 29, and 35 shows that the land previously had belonged to the Moabites who Sion had conquered, yet Yahweh had driven out Sion and given the land to the Hebrew people. None of the false gods, Jephthah said, delivered the Ammonites. Jephthah's message is thus simple in its evangelistic fervor. Don't you know that Yahweh is the only God who saves? But verse 28 says that Ammon rejected God's word. Whether or not Ammon would have ever received Jephthah's witness, he at least shared God's truth with them. We might reason, we might think, hey, these people will never heed the message of Christ, but we share the message of Christ with them nonetheless. We've got a story to tell. Counsel number six, share a biblical truth and leave the rest to the Holy Spirit. After Ammon rejects Jephthah's effort to establish peace. Verse 29 says, The Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. It speaks of Jephthah's divine sanction. Jephthah, immediately after the infilling of the Holy Spirit, makes a vow before defeating the Ammonites. Only two verses, verses 32 and 33, are given to this battle. The more pressing matter is what happens upon Jephthah's return home in light of the vow he made to offer up as a whole burnt offering whatever came out of his house to meet him first. Would an animal greet him? Probably not. Jephthah likely figured a servant would come out to minister to him. Yet verse 34 reveals that the first person out of Jephthah's house to meet him was his daughter. Exodus 15 verses 20 and 21 establishes that it was customary in Hebrew culture for women to dance after a great victory. In verse 35, Jephthah tears his clothes, realizing that he would never have an heir born to him. He would build no dynasty for himself. We cannot ignore key words in this text. Verse 34, 
She was an only child. Verses 37 to 38, she would never marry. Verse 39, she was a virgin. His daughter, upon learning of the vow that her father had made, simply asked permission to spend two months with her girlfriends in a mountain getaway to mourn how she would never marry. When she returns from that getaway, does Jephthah slaughter his daughter? Verse 39 says, he did to her as he had vowed. As Bereans, test me. This is a hard text. But you see, I believe that we have to read this text, not like modern Americanized people, but we have to think like ancient Hebrews. Consider, we have already seen that Jephthah had knowledge of the scripture by the way he testifies to Ammon. It makes sense that he would have known how Leviticus 27 verses 1 through 8 allowed for a money payment in place of a hasty vow. But according to that same chapter, Leviticus 27, verses 28 and 29, Jephthah also realized that any person devoted to God as most holy could not be redeemed by money, but had to be given totally to the sanctuary. With his vow, he said that he would devote whatever first came out of his house to the Lord. So a money payment was not possible. James B. Jordan says usually this means the death penalty, but it also is possible that it means to devote something or someone to God in life. I would suggest it is not only possible, but that it is actually a principle that again provides some counsel for the church. Numbers 18 verse 14 says to the priest, every devoted thing in Israel shall be yours. Thus, the heart and the essence of devotion was not destruction, but total dedication to the sanctuary of God. This is an exact parallel with Jephthah's daughter. And this is a principle that carries over to the New Testament. When we consider the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 12, verse 1, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Counsel number seven, those in the church ought to dedicate their lives to God. It is interesting to me that the daughter submits so calmly to the vow her father had made, requesting only to take an extended vacation with those who would have one day served as her bridesmaids. I don't know about you, but if I realized that my father was actually going to kill me after a two-month hiatus, I don't think I would have spent that much time in the mountains weeping over my virginity. That wouldn't make my bucket list. Perhaps... I would not have returned home from the mountain at all. Perhaps I would have run away. It's also interesting that the stress of the text is on how Jephthah's daughter will never marry. Not that she would die. Think about three points here. First, 
If she had been slaughtered, would there have been a tradition to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah? To me, that seems an unlikely event to celebrate if she had been the victim of child sacrifice. Plus, Gilead was a good little way from the tabernacle. And in all likelihood, her girlfriends would have spent, kind of like my wife likes to go every um, September, get away from me and go see her girlfriends in Oklahoma. It's not like right next door. You have to travel a little ways. And it's like a four-day trip. She might want it to be longer. I don't know. But, but, that's, uh, but that's, it, it, that's the travel distance that you're, you're looking at, that these girlfriends who may have gone to to see her would have taken that much time. Second, we discover that while God reproves Jephthah, the Lord does not remove him as judge, which chapter 12, verse 7 reveals. To me, that seems an unlikely office to maintain if he had engaged in child sacrifice. Third, if Jephthah had done what 2 Kings 16, verse 3 refers to as an abomination before the Lord, would his name still appear in the hall of faith? To me, that seems the most unlikely point of all. Knowing the scriptures as he did and filled with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit fell upon him and he makes the vow. <laughs> it's utterly inconceivable to me that Jephthah would have offered to kill someone in exchange for victory from God. Beyond that, Jephthah would have known that a sinful person could never be an acceptable sacrifice to God anyway. No, I believe Jephthah's daughter was ultimately dedicated to the Lord in a similar fashion as to what you see with Hannah's vow in 1 Samuel 1.11. The problem for Jephthah, however, was that he never anticipated that the vow would involve his only daughter, like with Hannah's vow and her firstborn son. You see, again, you go back to Judges 10 and verses 3 through 5, and you find about, I read about a minor judge named Jer. He had 30 sons. 30 sons. And that helps to explain Jephthah's peculiar um, lament in verse 35, since it was Jephthah's only daughter. She was the only means that his lineage could continue. God is dealing with Jephthah's misplaced aspirations. There would be no kingly dynasty to come through his household even though that is what he sought by promising to make a threshold sacrifice. Again, we must think like Hebrews. To understand a threshold sacrifice, you must go back to the Passover and Exodus. There, Yahweh establishes what is called a threshold covenant with his people. In ancient Israel tradition, the threshold was thus a place of great importance. Why do you think the Lord commanded Israel to apply the blood on their doorposts? It was an important sign of who lived there. Entering into one's house was entering into one's life. And this is where the threshold covenant comes into play. God establishes his nation of people by the marks of a sacrifice at the doorway of a house. 
Jephthah wants the Lord to now establish his lineage to reign over the nation by offering the first person from the doorway of his house as a sacrifice to perpetual tabernacle service. Jephthah's interest in building a dynasty is never in question. It just wasn't God's will. Counsel number eight, God never blesses a church that is about them rather than about him. Jephthah's only daughter would not marry. She would remain a virgin. And she would be dedicated to the Lord by ministering outside the doorway of the tabernacle for the rest of her life. Exodus 38 verse 8 reveals at the time of the construction of the tabernacle, they made the bronze basin and its bronze stand from the mirrors of the women who served at the entrance of the tent meeting. The fact that they would be devoted to God as virgins helps explain why it was so heinous and so wicked. What? Well, it's heinous and wicked even if they weren't virgins. What Eli's sons do to the women who are supposed to stand outside the tabernacle doors in 1 Samuel 2, verse 22. The Lord is saying to Jephthah, not your house, but my house must be built. I accept your sacrifice, but I have arranged it so that this sacrifice will end your house and build mine. The daughter of Jephthah points us to none other than Jesus Christ, the true threshold sacrifice. In John 10 verse 9, Jesus says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. God had already promised to build a dynasty from the lineage of Judah. And that later through the house of David, not Jephthah. This eternal kingdom was going to come by the father's only begotten son who would not serve at the tabernacle doors, but no, he would actually become a tabernacle among us and suffer the death penalty as the one true sinless sacrifice devoted as most holy to God. And it points us to the most important counsel for the church of all. Counsel number nine. The only way to enter the house of God is through the blood of the threshold sacrifice, Jesus Christ, the door. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. With his own blood, he bought her. And for her life, he died. Yes, the only kingdom that will prevail is the name of Jesus. Never place your trust in your own name or in the name of anything or anyone else. Only the name of Jesus. From the line of Judah, not of Jephthah. Pray with me. Lord, we are um, challenged at times through various texts of your word, which um, we have to wrestle with. 
It's hard. And I know that um, the vast majority of individuals who interpret this text do not interpret it as I have just done. And I pray, Spirit of God, that um, you would let your truth be known. That just because I say it from the pulpit doesn't make it exactly right. I wrestle with Scripture too. I have to lay bare before your word too. And I am by no means a perfect man with perfect thoughts. Oh, indeed, your thoughts are above ours and your ways are above ours. But Lord, help us to know your truth. And no matter what, where there may be a difference of thought here or there, there's one thought that binds us all together. At least it should. And it is that I have no other hope but the name of Jesus. That amid the failures of your people, you came and you tabernacled among us and you died. Oh, but you did not stay dead. And you are risen and we are your bride. And I pray that we would devote our lives to you in service. We've got a story to tell. That this, your church, is built on the one foundation of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Oh, he's a wonderful, merciful, merciful Savior. And so we come now in prayer, Christ, here among us today. By your Spirit, strengthen us, challenge us, equip us and send us out. For the glory of Christ, we pray.